the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Thank you for joining us on this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. I am your host and executive producer, a la Dick Wolf, Cooper Cherry, joined by my illustrious co-host, Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before I let Taylor introduce today's guest, who he's very excited about, we're both very excited. I wanted to mention we do have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider throwing us a buck a month there. Or, you know, if you can't, uh, leave us a, a nice review on iTunes. But I will throw it to my my colleague, Taylor, and uh, let him introduce today's guest. So today we have Daniel W. Smith, who is a translator, a scholar of Deleuze, and who also runs the extremely important, or I guess you co-edit the extremely important Deleuze translation project over at Purdue. We'll have a link for that for the for the listeners. And uh, Dan, we are so happy to have you here today. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. And this is something we can kind of start with. I, I just want to know a little bit before asking you about a little bit about your sort of <laughs> educational background. I, I always kind of like to hear the stories about, you know, grad school and, and, and the dissertation and, and whatnot. But I, I do want to know a little bit about the getting all the seminars translated, because we had Charles Saval on a few weeks back, and we mm. got to talk to him a little bit about this. But it does seem like this was initially your sort of brainchild, right? This was this was your inspiration, and, and you seem to be behind a lot of the wheels and cogs of getting funding, applying for NEH grants, and these other things. So did, did it just seem like I want to know your your impetus behind it. Was it was it just this need to get these extremely important <laughs> seminars out? Was this just something that had always been a drive for you? Well, mainly I just wanted to read them myself. The University of Paris had started the project of transcribing the lectures. I think Alain Badiou was actually one of the uh, initial sort of really leaders. Yeah, well, he was head of the committee. I don't think he did surprising. A lot of work, but- I think he, yeah, it is. Well, not so much. I mean, I know there's this bad you to lose, uh, you know, whatever um, rivalry, if you want to put it that way. But, uh, you know, he, he, He's an admirer of Deleuze, and I think he, he thought it was important to get them transcribed. But at some point, that project, which I think was done by a lot of students at uh, the University of Parisay at Saint-Denis, just kind of stalled because it had been going on for 15 years, and they hadn't done the Foucault seminar. Mm. And I was really anxious to see the Foucault seminar, so I actually applied, got some money from my own university, Purdue University, to hire someone to transcribe those. And the condition of getting one of these grants was that it becomes seed money for another grant. So then I applied to the NEH 
And um, it's kind of ballooned from there. So now what was initially my effort to get the uh, Foucault seminar transcribed simply so I could read it has now blossomed into a full-blown project. The transcriptions are completely done for all the seminars Deleuze gave at the University of Paris. And now we're in the process of of translating them. And Charles Duval is the co-director of the project and one of the main translators. And he is moving at lightning speed. (laughs) He's retired. So he's devoting a lot of his time to this project, which which is really wonderful. So we are close to almost finishing up those translations now, thanks to Charles. He did mention this one thing that that I want to hear your side on before we we can move on and, and circle back, because I do think this is an extremely important project. When I first started reading Deleuze, there was, um, I guess there was another website, maybe connected or not, just like the, maybe it was just called Seminar Deleuze or, or something like that. And there were Web fragments Deleuze. here in there. Web Deleuze, yes. Yeah. There were fragments here and there. So this being a comprehensive mode of getting everything done. One of the things that came out in our discussion with Charles was this notion that there is also this call for a data retrieval. There is this call hoping, maybe beyond hope, you know, still hoping that there might be other audio recordings that could give access to, to some of Deleuze's seminars that you don't have at the moment. Do you have any hope that this will turn out or is this kind of just doing due diligence? Well, we've gotten a few, but not as many as we would like. The recordings we have were all done by a Japanese student whose name I can't remember. I'll probably mispronounce it if I tried. But he faithfully went to Deleuze's seminars for, I think, about the last 10 years, sat next to him at every session and recorded them on cassettes and then gave those cassettes to the uh, Bibliothèque Nationale, the National Library of France. So we're grateful to him to mm-hmm. have done done that work. But he began, I think, in 1979 mm-hmm. and Deleuze started teaching you know, at the University of Paris 8 at Saint-Denis, I believe in 1972 or 71. Okay. So there's a whole number of years before he started recording that we have some tapes from, but by no means uh, complete tapes. And the problem is, of course, people who are attending these seminars now are quite old. Yes. And if they recorded them, they're on cassettes. They're maybe you know sitting in a box in their garage and they're not thinking about it. So the challenge is to really somehow find a way, and they're not necessarily on social media. Yeah, so, right. You know, find a way to contact these people and see if they uh, you know can find their tapes and give them to us. So We've had a couple come in, but uh, that's that's a bigger project. We're probably going to have to focus on more to try to get the word out. And so these were these would have been perhaps earlier. <laughs> I think uh, Charles said his last name at least was Suzuki. I don't remember his first Suzuki. Name. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So, but yeah. so these that came in, the few that came out are these are these some of the some earlier ones that then then he would have had uh, he would have started. Yeah, the earlier Italian TV or no. It, mm-hmm. Actually, no, sorry, let me correct that. There was a professor at the University of Paris 8, Saint-Denis, Muriel Burkhalter, who went in and videotaped a good part of Deleuze's seminar one year. Those videos were eventually published on Italian TV. So we do have those, and you can actually find some of those on YouTube. That's an exception. Like one year during the 70s, someone had the foresight to go in and videotape a lot of those. But apart from that, no, there are big gaps. There's a whole year that we deduced Deleuze was devoting his lectures to the topic of continuous variation. Awesome. And we only have one lecture from that year on Spinoza. And uh, I would love to find the rest of this. And let me tell you a reason why I think the seminars are so important. There is a seminar Deleuze gave on Deleuze that's what's called the Tavern. It first appeared on Web Deleuze. Okay. And it's about Leibniz's notion of freedom. And Deleuze discusses it for yeah. about you know three hours. And it's about a 30-page single-spaced text when you download it from Web Deleuze. And it appeared there at some point. And I thought it was absolutely fabulous mm-hmm. because Leibniz talks about freedom often, but usually it's the freedom of God to create the best of all possible worlds, uh, 
given right. the fact that you can see of infinite worlds, but there's only a couple places where it really talks about human freedom, but that's what Deleuze is focused in on there. And, um, you know, it's a wonderful and detailed analysis. And Deleuze published a book on Leibniz called The Fold. And I was curious as to why none of this material is in the book, even right. though he devoted an entire seminar. And so I went back to the book and looked through it. And indeed, he talks about exactly these same themes in the book, but it is reduced literally to one paragraph. And I realized <laughs> there is no way personally, even though I've read a lot of Deleuze, <laughs> yeah. I can reconstitute all the arguments and thinking that went into this paragraph in the book without going back to the seminars. So you realize that the seminars were Deleuze's workshop in a way, yeah. his laboratory, and he was thinking and working stuff out with his students. And then the books really become almost these abridged, condensed summaries of what went on in the seminars. For my money, from my point of view, as someone who's worked on Deleuze for a long time, I really think the seminar seminars in some ways some of the most important aspects of Deleuze's corpus because they really give us the fullest sort of insight <laughs> path into his thinking that you simply, I simply cannot get from the books. Yeah. So that's why I really would love to get our hands on as many of these seminars as possible before the people who possess these cassettes, you know, consign them to the dustbin of history. <laughs> right. I like your way of describing it as his workshop because he, in more than one place, talks about learning. And, you know, learning is not do like me, it's do with me. And so there is a sense in which he, you know, because he does talk about in the Abbasidere that, you know, he would prepare very assiduously for these, for these seminars. And so you, I can see why, you know, just with your one example, why the seminars are so rich and can take these other lines and extend them outward that we only get to see in an abbreviated and truncated form in, in the books. It is interesting, the notion of human freedom, because off the top of my head, I'm thinking about your paper on, on Paul Patton's book, Deleuze and the Political. And you point out that, you know, one of the concepts he brings sort of from outside, so to speak, to in this confrontation, in this encounter with Deleuze is the notion of freedom that's neither positive nor negative, but critical. And you yourself kind of point out that Deleuze doesn't really talk about freedom much. He, he, he has that interesting uh, line from Difference of Repetition, where freedom is sort of, is, it's always in the midst of, a, of social upheaval. So to see that he has a whole three-hour seminar talking about it, it kind of helps to add a little bit to kind of like a mosaic from which we're missing some pieces. No, that's true. Uh, Husserl made a difference, drew a distinction between uh, philosophers, thematic concepts and operative concepts. Thematic concepts are the ones that are obvious, you know, Deleuze, it's rhizome and imminence and all the things <laughs> we know about. But then there are sort of hidden operative concepts that are at work, but they don't necessarily flag or, you know, work on and thematize. And I think freedom is one of those operative concepts in Deleuze. The thematic concept is desire. I think that's how he mm -hmm. thinks through some of the more traditional notions of freedom. But there is this kind of operative notion at work there. But you wouldn't see it, as I say, as clearly without the seminars. And if I can say one other thing about the seminars and why I think they're important is that Deleuze did not write them out. Apparently, he would come at best to the seminar with you know a little piece of paper that kind of outlined a deduction of concepts that he would like to go through. But there are no, there are no written texts for it. So people like Derrida and Foucault wrote out their seminar text. Interesting. They've all been published, you know, and because people can go back and look at the text. Right. But the, well, was, he didn't have a text. He just had, at best, some notes he had written out ahead of time. And that means the uh, the oral presentation is really all we have. And these tapes are the only record of sort of Deleuze's thinking that he was doing every week. And that's why I think they're highly important texts uh, for those of us who are interested in Deleuze.
And that gets us back to this notion of continuous variation. If he's not writing them out, he's able to have not to be punning, but he has some, a little bit more leeway and freedom to sort of depending on the audience, maybe depending on, um, you know, reading the crowd. I'm not sure his method, you know, but it, it, it makes sense that if he hadn't written out the lectures, it, it gives a little bit more context to why he says he he prepared so long for each session. And that one of the reasons why he at least claims that he uh, retired what, in 87 or so, is because he had to prepare more and more for less. He says it's something like that. Maybe he's being self-denigrating, but, you know, his, his failing health, too, at the time. So um, all this is fascinating, and, I, and I'm, I'm glad we got to deal with that straight out. I do want to circle back and just, it may seem like a basic question, but I remember very vividly how I came to Deleuze, and it was in the I think you might laugh at me or the listeners might laugh at me. It was, it was based on an algorithm. It was a, an Amazon book recommendation. Difference, repetition, and logic of sense were, were suggested to me because at the time I was, reading, I was reading Nietzsche. I was reading, I think I just started reading Being in Time for a class. This is also how I found being an event because I was like, oh, well, if, if they're that cocky to name a book being an, an event, like being in nothingness, being a time, it's got to be, you know, this monumental piece of, of work. So Difference of Repetition was one of those titles that jumped out at me. And that was fortunate because about six months later, I met the first professor who actually knew something about Deleuze. So I guess I wanted to know a little bit about, you even mentioned that your dissertation board didn't necessarily consist of Delizians. So how do you, do you want to tell us a little bit about how you got into his work and what, what that encounter was like for you? Like you, it was completely by chance. I was reading Nietzsche like you and mm -hmm. Deleuze's book on Nietzsche had recently been translated. So I picked it up. I think I vaguely knew something about who Deleuze was, but I still have to this day a hard copy, you know, so I, you know, I was not rich as a grad student, but I sprung for the hardcover copy because the paperback wasn't out yet. And I found it was just an incredible reading of, mm. of Nietzsche that just kind of blew me away. Incredibly systematic given that Nietzsche himself mm -hmm. didn't feel systematic. So that's what got me into Deleuze. And then I went to the library uh, at the University of Chicago, where I was, and I remember finding Difference in Repetition on the shelf. It had not been cracked open, but they had a good library that got a lot of the and a lot of these texts. And I realized then and there I wanted to read that book, and I, I realized then and there I needed to learn French because I didn't know French at the time, and I had to kind of pass the exams for graduate school. But there you go. That's Two quite different than actually <laughs> learning French so, so I could... So I could read it. So that's what got me into Deleuze. People often ask me, what's the best text to start reading in Deleuze if one wants to get going? And it's a very hard question to answer because I say, well, it depends who you're interested in. You know, if you're interested in Spinoza, read the Spinoza. If you're interested yeah. in Nietzsche, read the Nietzsche. Because he doesn't have a text. Um, and it's unfortunate. You know, it's a reason why I think Descartes remains so important to philosophy. I mean, he was a revolutionary thinker. But at the same time, he has the Meditations, which was written as a text to be read by someone who has absolutely no background in philosophy. You can pick this up with zero <laughs> philosophy and start meditating and following the meditations. And unfortunately, there's no text like that for Deleuze, which is a challenge in how he fits into the canon. It's a challenge on how he gets taught. And because there's no easy mode of access to Deleuze that way, I think it affects how he, I don't know how to put this, how he's positioned in, in the canon. Everyone knows he's an important thinker, but no one quite knows what to do with him just because, frankly, he's hard to slot into an undergraduate mm -hmm. class because right. there's no easy text you can give to him. So um 
And as you say, there's this weird thing in French philosophy about like all the great books are just two words connected by an end. I don't know, <laughs> yeah. just being in time, being an event, difference in repetition, writing in difference, mm-hmm. totality and infinity, being in nothingness. You could rattle off a whole list of books that are that are titled that way. And Deleuze is included in that. So. I do like, I know that um, with Cooper, one of the books that we first did when we were starting to record on Deleuze, because we have been doing a lot of Freud in preparation for our series on anti-Oedipus, and we read Proust and Signs together. And I know Nietzschean philosophy is one of the places that many people start with to get into Deleuze, perhaps because of Nietzsche's popularity. But I know that Coop really enjoyed Proust and Signs. And there's a sense in which, because it was rewritten several times, you do kind of see this continuity of the effect Watry had on him reading the final chapters that were added in later. And so I think that I would, for those who are interested in literature, maybe coming to philosophy from literature, even without a knowledge of Proust, I think Proust and Science is one of those yeah. texts that, but yeah, Coop, did you want to say anything about your thoughts on that text? I mean, I just think Deleuze's prose is just magnificent. It's just outstanding prose. It's a great read. It's very clear. It's beautifully written. And, you know, I guess you're, you're right. It's a good foil, I think, because he sounds very structuralist. He sounds like very influenced by like kind of the Lacanian sort of influence at that point. That's kind of what I picked on. But yeah, definitely recommend to anyone interested in Deleuze and, and literature. It's fantastic lit crit. And Richard Howard's a, a great translator. I think he only translated that one Deleuze text, but he's he's in his 90s. And I emailed him last year and he's still, <laughs> he was very grateful to hear that I was, you know, he was, he's one of the guys I look up to, you know, he's, do you have uh, some translators that, that you look up to? Because I've, I've mentioned that I look up to you, I said that in confidence, but I'm saying that now for the, for the audience, uh, not, the just for the, yeah. not just for the scholarship, but for the translating. Do you have a do you have a translator that that inspires you? Well, I agree. Richard Howard is fantastic. And I think the Proust book stands out because he's a poet and uh, you can kind of feel uh-huh. it in his translation and, and how it comes out. So I, I always admired his translation of Proust and Science. I've also also wondered if Deleuze's style was not affected by the fact he's writing on Proust. <laughs> so he's immersed in Proust text. It's really the most literary of Deleuze's books, I find. And I wonder if that's just the Proust influence, because generally, mm-hmm. as people say, he's kind of he's kind of dry in his writing style. And um, um, he writes in indicative sentences. You know, he mm-hmm. just sort of states what he thinks and then moves on from one to the other. But the Proust book is by far and away the most literary text. And I agree. When I after I read um, the Nietzsche book, I read the Proust book partly because it was one of the few that had been translated mm-hmm. at the time. So I hadn't read Proust, but I could still read the Proust book on its own. And um, I, I think that too was a good access to his his work. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with that. What I was thinking at the time, rereading Proust and Signs with Cooper, was I was struck by how it prepares us for the big tome, Difference of Repetition. I say, I mean, it's not even that long, but it's dense, right? And because it, it gives us a kind of rundown of the image of thought. And I was struck by how that could be one way to, if there were one monograph to get deeper into um difference of repetition, it's, you know, you get prepared for the image of thought chapter, which he seems to say, I think in the preface to the English translation, that if anything from difference of repetition still kind of stands, it's the concreteness of the image of thought chapter. Uh, He puts it something like this. He does say that. The other section he refers to in the Italian preface to Logic of Sense is the little section at the beginning of the repetition chapter on the first synthesis on habit and contemplation and contraction. It's the other aspect of difference in repetition later that he looks back and says, that's something I'm quite 
proud of and mm-hmm. look back on fondly. But yes, the, the image of thought section, I think perhaps because it was the more concrete section of difference in repetition. Once you get to the sections on intensity and on his theory of ideas and the mathematics and the calculus, it becomes quite uh, technical. But I think mm-hmm. the image of thought, thought chapter is quite accessible. So perhaps he was referring to that and thinking it was the more concrete chapter of the book. What's interesting, though, I mean, I'm struck when reading your work that you, if I had to speak for you, which I'm, I'm not going to since you're here to, to speak in your stead, but it does seem like you give a very, I don't want to say privilege, but you give a, a sort of pride of place to the fourth chapter, which is the difficult one on this history of mathematics, on what he says, like, there's this these buried treasures in the pre-Cantorian differential calculus to be found in order to sort of think through a concept of differentiation with the T. Do you feel that you have this affinity with that fourth chapter? I would agree with that. That's actually quite perceptive and actually helpful for me to hear because what I didn't have an affinity for and haven't written as much about is the chapter on intensity, Mm. which I still find a much more difficult concept than the stuff on mathematics in in the fourth chapter. And I think I was interested in that fourth chapter because uh, maybe partly because I was using Kant as my uh, way of thinking through Deleuze's system of thought. And I think one of the characterizations of Deleuze that people make that's wrong is that he's anti-dialectics. Yes. He can be, in a sense, anti-Hegelian, but, you know, he sees philosophy as a creation of concepts. And I think what he was doing in that chapter is just creating his own notion of what dialectics could be and should be. That's what I found interesting in that chapter. Dialectics begins with Plato. Kant, uh, you know, the last part of the critique of pure reason is the transcendental dialectic. And he explicitly says, I'm going to steal from Plato and use his notion of the idea, but use it in a different way. Hegel riffs on that. And I think Deleuze comes along and says, well, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to develop a notion of ideas, a theory of what an idea is, but in my own way, you know, drawing on the calculus and the notion of problematics and the virtual and so forth. But rather than a rejection of dialectics, it's Deleuze kind of creating a new notion of what dialectics could be and should be. I did appreciate, again, because I do, you may be right that parts of chapter four, the intensity, you're right, the differentiation with the C, it's very difficult, but you go back to chapter four, you go back to this history of mathematics in order to present an alternative to, or corrective really, to the way that Badu sort of famously misreads Deleuze in his clamor of being, which I remember when I first read that book, I wasn't ready to have gone down that path of tackling Badu on the question of mathematics. One of the things that I remember writing about specifically was Badu's claim that, you know, for me, politics is this separate truth category, whereas for Deleuze, you know, it, it's not. And I remember taking my line of attack was this seems like an ignorance of capitalism and schizophrenia because he he really wants to stop Deleuze at 69 with difference of rotation and logic of sense. But you work through the, you work through some of the implications that Badu is kind of on the major royal science, the theorematic side, the axiomatic side of mathematics, and doesn't even seem to realize that Deleuze is working through what he calls problematics, as you've kind of pointed out with, <laughs> with the idea and uh, concepts always being related to problems. So I wonder if Instead of talking about Badu, which I'm sure we could, I had this idea reading those is going back to the history of philosophy, the history of mathematics, and even sometimes sociology to find these minor thinkers, this minor line of thinkers that may have been either forgotten by the tradition or overlooked or even overcoded. I'm thinking of like Gabriel Tard for sociology versus Durkheim. I'm thinking of, you know, um, 
well, obviously his his line, Spinoza Nietzsche, but you could add in Lucretius, you could add in some of these other thinkers that even like going back to Bergson at, at that time was was sort of recovering a, a lost thinker. And then Rouillet and Simondon, these, these sort of, do you think that Deleuze has this, he's always had this familiarity with the minor, even his first book on Hume, right, is kind of, is kind of against the grain. So is there, is there since he's like, it's not like he's a contrarian, right? It, it may seem like he's, he's like a DJ hunting for like the, that specific sample, you know what I mean? Yeah. You've got to find those obscure samples for the, for the track. Right. What do you think about this minor, this privileging of the minor, I guess, and the underdog even sometimes? I, I think it's definitely part of Deleuze's, one might even just say his characters. There's an interview in the Abyssidaire, or the Abyssidaire where he's asked about what he likes in food, and he says he likes brain and tongue, you know, parts of the body most people maybe don't like to eat. I think it reveals his philosophical mentality. I do think he was often interested in minor figures, but not just minor figures. You know, it was the mi- as he always says, it's the minor dimension of even the major figures. So take Kant and Hegel and Plato mm. and find, find that minor direction that their thought could be taking. So it is definitely an aspect of his thinking. And this came up in the context of Badiou and the math- mathematics stuff. I-, I owe a lot to Peter Howard because he was writing his book on Badiou. And then it asked me to write a paper on the Badiou Deleuze relation, which eventually I wound up focusing much more on the mathematics. And it is interesting on the mathematical domains that they focus on. Badiou was focused on set theory, above all. Deleuze was focused much more on calculus and sort of non-Euclidean geometry. And it did become interesting in how and why they were choosing their particular branches of mathematics. And I I agree here as well that I think Deleuze saw calculus and non-Euclidean geometry as a kind of minor form of mathematics. It's a strange thing to say since calculus lies at the center of Mm -hmm. mathematics, but the history is not quite so simple because calculus was invented, of course, by Leibniz and Newton, but it was shot through with concepts that were hardly straightforwardly mathematical, like infinitesimals, Mm -hmm. famously. An infinitesimal is a quantity that's equal to zero which is mathematical nonsense. It's a quantity. It's not zero. And, you know, passages to the limit and numerous other concepts. And it wasn't until the end of the 1900s in what came to be known as the crisis of the foundations that mathematicians really got their act together and said, we need to make calculus rigorous. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, for 200 years, it had been the main driver of the scientific revolution and unlocking the secrets of nature. As Bertrand Russell says, now pretty much any law of nature that we know is expressed as a differential equation. So calculus is a direct sort of means of exploring the nature of reality and existence. You might say calculus is existentialism in mathematics. You know, no engineer uses set theory, you know, in their, when they're trying to figure out how to build a bridge or, you know, whatever. So that's why Deleuze is interested in it. It's a mathematical means for exploring the nature of reality. And uh, I say that tongue in cheek, but actually it is a good phrase. It's existentialism in mathematics. And the high road was to kind of provide a rigorous understanding of the calculus but it was still the calculus that was this still a fairly minor trajectory in mathematics that had a, a kind of barbaric status for a long time. Or it wasn't deemed to be sufficiently rigorous mathematically, even though it was incredibly useful practically in domains like engineering and, and elsewhere. So I think that's why I find you know what Deleuze does with mathematics and Badiou does with mathematics somewhat revealing about their you know respective philosophical trajectories. And even in in being an event, you know, you have the way he wrote the book, you kind of have the technical sections, you have the math sections, and then you have the forays into the history of philosophy as a way of kind of uh, exposing, expositing these ideas. And Badu himself kind of 
takes this major mode even in the history of philosophy, right? He he wants to he wants to privilege Plato. He wants to privilege Descartes, these thinkers, and Hegel. You know, and Zizek has, has obviously taken note from this too, but there is this sense in which he, even in the history of philosophy, Badu shows himself to be taking this major road, whereas Deleuze is constantly seeking. And as you said, even when he's taking the major figures, he's, he's looking for that, that, minor, that minor underside. So even on that, you can see that they have totally different stances. And one of the ways, I love how you end the essay because you kind of say, well, Deleuze has talked about this notion that one can have a taste for different philosophical inclinations. Do you think it does come down to a kind of matter of taste for these two, these two thinkers? Possibly. I do think that's an important fact, that there is a kind of thing that we could call philosophical taste that makes you decide to read this book rather than that book and why you like certain thinkers rather than other thinkers. For instance, for me, I have to confess, I don't have a taste for Bergson, which is mm-hmm. embarrassing to say because Deleuze was so influenced by Bergson. But for some reason, he's not a thinker I naturally take to. I, I've read all his work. I can repeat I can repeat the things he says, but I don't feel like I have an intuitive inside view of Bergson. And I think that's just for me a matter of philosophical taste. Even though I love Deleuze, I somehow don't have a taste. I don't have a taste for Bergson. And I find it interesting with both Badiou and Zizek when they've written on Deleuze. As you pointed out earlier, they have, they have very little interest in capitalism and schizophrenia and try to portray Deleuze as a kind of, I don't know, elitist or non-political thinker, which they do by simply eliding, you know, this whole two-volume, almost a thousand-page book, uh, which is about capitalism and schizophrenia and is a kind of political work in political philosophy. And that too might be a matter of sort of um, philosophical taste, because they're very interested in the notion of rupture, you know, and the notion of an event that would come out of the real from a kind of uh, Lacanian perspective. And Deleuze has a very different way of thinking about that. So I think they're just, not that they're at odds, they just, they conceive of the domain of politics in, a, in quite differing ways, I think. This is interesting because I'm thinking back to one of the, one of the things you said earlier about how fitting Deleuze into the canon, where he goes, even if there is this difficulty it does seem like because of his monographs, at least, and in, in this interest in the history of philosophy, he can find a home. Whereas with someone like Badu, someone like Zizek, or even, you know, um, I've heard this elsewhere, it's hard to know what to do with Watery. And a lot it seems like, I don't know if, if we still see this in, in Deleuze studies, which is its own separate thing, but with Badu and Zizek, it does seem like that Guattari has to be kind of bracketed and kind of put to the side as though, as though somehow their work together is a corruption. And, and, and as you point out, Zizek himself says that Anti-Oedipus he finds to be Deleuze's worst book. Is there a sense in which, you know, obviously Guattari having, having a place is kind of, he is that kind of nomadic, schizophrenic, wild scientist. But is there a sense in which there is this tendency to see Guattari's influence or writing with Deleuze as, as kind of, corrupting him or taking him down the wrong path or ruining him. I've kind of heard this in, in several ways, but what are your thoughts on that? You definitely see that in Zizek. I think there are comments Derrida made at various points uh, suggesting the same, because of course, Anti-Oedipus is you know, written in a very different style and it's hard to access. And that seems to be Lewis just going down the desiring machine route uh, influenced by Guattari, as opposed to the dry, rigorous monographs that he'd been writing up to that point. It is a very interesting question, I find, why Deleuze needed Guattari. He clearly mm-hmm. needed Guattari. My sense is this, that up till he met Guattari, Deleuze needed, as he says, 
interlocutors or negotiators, so to speak. And up to that point, they were the major figures in the history of philosophy. He said he couldn't really, he had a hard time thinking in his own name and thinking on his own. Mm -hmm. So he would think with whoever he was writing, he would think with mm -hmm. Proust, think with Kant, think with Hume, think with Bergson. I think that's why he needed to write on other thinkers, because he would use them to find his own thought. That's why all the monographs have a particular Deleuzean quality. Mm -hmm. He's incredibly rigorous and faithful to the thinkers he's writing on, on the one hand, but at the same time, he's completely unfaithful in a way. because The buggering. <laughs> the buggering, yeah, which yeah. is in which people love. But I think it's just at some point, Deleuze takes those thinkers and just pushes them in his Deleuzean direction, a kind of differential philosophy direction, which is not necessarily not there, but you could say it's not explicitly there, but mm -hmm. it's, it's where he pushes them. So it's what gives his monographs that particularly Deleuzean quality. He's, at the one hand, very faithful to the thinkers, but on the other hand, yeah, producing a kind of monstrous buggery. And at a certain point, I think he needed someone like that in the present in the contemporary period, the same way he needed figures in the history of philosophy to think, I think he needed someone like Otari to connect himself to the present. I, you know, he's, he was a very, um, I don't know if he was, you know, autistic or, you know, Asperger type, but it kind of <laughs> seems that way at times. You know, even when he and Guattari got together, Guattari said, oh, let's have group meetings and we'll get all our friends, we'll all get together, you know, have no, this mass yeah. thing. And Deleuze was like, no, 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 it's you. <laughs> and me, and that's it. And even there, they wrote separately, and Guattari would write out his thoughts, and Fanny, Deleuze's wife, would pick them up and bring them back to Deleuze, and then Deleuze would work with them. And I th I think he needed that injection of, you know, schizo thinking is how Guattari mm -hmm. thought of what he was doing. And Guattari later on just complained about Deleuze, that he was too overcoding. All he cared about when they were writing Anti-Oedipus was the work and the final result. Mm -hmm. And he felt overcoded by Deleuze. And he says at one point, he even had a little resentment once the book became so well-known and became a yeah. kind of bestseller that now he has to has to deal with all this uh, <laughs> all this stuff. So on the one hand, you know, Guattari feels Deleuze is this kind of overcoding person who just always is doing philosophy, always thinking about the work. But I think Deleuze in turn needed someone like Guattari who was deep into psychoanalysis. You know, he mm -hmm. worked with actual schizophrenic patients at Laborde Clinic. He was an activist politically in mm -hmm. a way Deleuze, you know, wasn't. And so I think Deleuze needed Guattari as his contact if I can put it this way, to the contemporary period in a way that he couldn't quite do on his own. In the same way to do philosophy, I think he needed he needed to work with the figures in the history of philosophy. But at some point, Guattari played the same role that those major figures in the history of philosophy played. They were his interlocutor that he, he needed in order to think. Because otherwise, you know, you know, why why would he, you know, team up with someone like Guattari? He clearly was a great thinker on his own. But I, I do think he needed Guattari in some fundamental levels. Yeah. And at least from what we know a little bit about the anecdotes about how they wrote together, it seemed like to a certain extent Guattari needed, he may have resented it some, but he needed a kind of taskmaster to get him to put his thoughts down and to, to sort of lubricate his writing machines so that they could, they could kind of, you know, produce something what is it? Deleuze uses all kinds of different images, like the like they would make a great sumo wrestler. Like, like <laughs> you know, the the way you're describing it too made me think that Deleuze is obviously more introverted, and Guattari is more extroverted. There are these different metaphors. I'm trying to think of the other one where what Deleuze is the sea, and Guattari is I forget how it goes. <laughs> but, but but Guattari is this is always moving, right? And Deleuze yes. is, is sort of voyaging in place. Yeah, the waves lapping on the shore. Yeah, he was definitely. Um... 
yeah, you can get a lot of images, but uh, he was the movement. <laughs> he was mm -hmm. just constantly moving in every <coughs> direction. And Guattari at one point says, I just want to kind of, you know, spit out the schizo flow. And I think Deleuze in a way like that, he would just kind of pick and choose things he needed from Guattari and then, you know, incorporate them up into the work. And it's curious that they say they never tutoyed each other in French. They never right. used the familiar form with each other. They always vouvoyed each other, even though they worked together. I think they hung out together. But their relationship was, you know, as they said, they were... They were friends, but um, not buddies. They were yeah. amis in French, but not copains. So they, uh, they had a certain, you know, respectful relationship to each other. They, they worked together. They were not buddies in that yeah. sense. And uh, I, I think that's what helped make it a fruitful partnership. That's interesting. And as you said, it, it kind of, it is a kind of codification of formalization, but it, but it shows that um, if it devolved into the two form, into the familiar, it might, it, to some extent, perhaps, I don't want to say devalue the work, but it, it might deprioritize it in a certain way, as you're saying, for Deleuze, that was, that was the point, right? And I guess I also think about this period in the 80s when they seemed to cool off. And one of the things that I have heard, and I, I couldn't track it down in Doss's biography, which is fascinating and interesting in its own right to hear about the personal lives of these thinkers, but I have heard it said, and I don't know if it's true, that Guattari had little to do with the writing of, of what is philosophy. Do you have any opinions on that? Or, or maybe, maybe I missed something in, in Doss's biography. Well, I have an opinion. I don't actually know what the truth is. My opinion is the same as what you just said, is that I think Deleuze wrote what is philosophy, just because you can tell by the style. It's written mm -hmm. in that dry style that Deleuze had. And I think that's the case. It's because he realized he was drawing on the work that he and Guattari had done together and their concepts, you know, deterritorialization and so forth. So I think he, you know, wanted to admit his debt to Guattari and he was simply continuing the work they had done together. But I get the sense he wrote that book mainly on his own, but was incorporating the works that um, he and Guattari had done together. That being said, I don't know, I don't know if that's a fact. Like maybe there were other ways in which Guattari was contributing to the writing of that book that was different than the mm -hmm. kind of composition that went on with Anti-Oedipus, where really Guattari would like lots of text and Deleuze would use them and kind of work them up together. It's probably just the relationship they had changed and the writing machine, so to speak, that they had developed together probably had mutated at that point. So I'm not sure, on the other hand, that it's entirely true that Deleuze just wrote that book and kind of gave a nod to Guattari by putting his name on it. I suspect there were probably more collaborative aspects to that book that we just don't know about and they didn't really you know, make visible as much as they did in the earlier works. This is fascinating to me because I'm glad that there isn't a definitive answer. I like that it's kind of left in, left up to the imagination. You know, one of the things that I noticed is that you do see some of these wild diagrams in what is philosophy. And whether or not Deleuze wrote that himself, that seems to be a direct influence of Guattari because I always had this thought that can you imagine a work like Difference of Repetition with Guattari's, especially the late Guattari, with his, with his diagrams and, and the schizoanalytic cartographies? I completely agree. You know, Deleuze, I think it's Deleuze who thinks of philosophy as the creation of concepts, and that becomes one of the theses of what is philosophy. Mm -hmm. But at one point, Deleuze says about Guattari that he didn't really think of philosophy that way. He was more interested in drawing diagrams because he saw diagrammatism, or I forget how they... Diagrammatism. 
yeah. diagrammatism. Yeah. I think that was Batari. He thought in diagrams, whereas mm-hmm. Deleuze thought in concepts. So even though the book explicitly says we define philosophy as the creation of concepts, the fact that there are these diagrams in there, you know, Kant's philosophy and other things, I think is the influence of Guattari. That's how he thought. And I think those diagrams could be literal drawings, but they could also be just written text that were just kind of diagrammatic where he was just throwing things out there. So that's where I think Guattari had an influence and where maybe Deleuze was the overcoding machine saying, mm-hmm. I see philosophy as the creation of concepts. And even with regard to Deleuze, for Guattari was his minor figure that was not necessarily doing the major conceptual stuff that Deleuze wanted to do, but was kind of seeping out and pursuing lines of flight mm-hmm. even more than Deleuze himself was doing or perhaps could do. I love that idea. I love the diagrams and and what is philosophy, even when they discuss Badu. I remember, and I, I this could be apocryphal, but I remember Badu saying, if, if anyone can explain what Deleuze and Guattari write about his philosophy and in, in what is philosophy, then he would be very grateful because he doesn't <laughs> he doesn't understand it. And you do you do have a I guess a paragraph or you do mention this uh, in your in your essay on Badu. And I think it's it's not important though. Um, I just I just always had wondered, I'd always taken it, I'd always heard it taken as gospel that Guattari had nothing to do with what is philosophy. And in my sense was more on your level that the writing machine had perhaps changed, that even if Deleuze was more on the compositional side, you can still see the you could still see the presence there. So it's not it's not as though Deleuze just signed the name as though to keep to keep the thing going or as or or just as a a friendly gesture that there is an importance, but it does seem to reinforce that tendency I was talking about to drop out Guattari, right? And and just to say, no, this is Deleuze and that's this is Guattari. And even though we have the biographical information about how they wrote together, as you mentioned, Guattari writing a lot and Deleuze doing more of the editing at the same time, it does seem to do them a disservice to to try to dismantle the the assemblage, if you will. Yeah, I agree with that entirely. And it's true, there is a tendency to elide Guattari. And I confess, there's times where I've been guilty of that. You know, I wrote a book and I called it Essays on Deleuze, not Essays on Deleuze and, and Guattari. Well, and I have to say, Guattari is one of those thinkers, kind of like Bergson, who I've read almost everything, but I, I don't feel the kind of the same kind of elective affinity as I might feel with, with other people. But I do want to say this about what is philosophy. I know a number of people and some good friends of mine who work on Deleuze who don't really like what is philosophy mm-hmm. because they feel like, you know, suddenly Deleuze, who I think they would think thought of as a kind of hybrid, you know, think you're like breaking down barriers and distinctions, suddenly writes a book and says, here's what philosophy is. You create concepts, science creates functions, and art creates, uh, you know, beings of sensation. And they felt like suddenly he's making these very sharp breaks between domains that previously he had you know, been willing you know, to, to break down those kind of barriers. I see it slightly differently because I think it's not dissimilar to what Deleuze and Guattari did in Anti-Oedipus and in Capitalism and Schizophrenia, where they set out a number of social formations, primitive societies, mm-hmm. states, capitalism, and then they add in A Thousand Plateaus the nomadic war machine. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting in its own right, because they published Anti-Oedipus, and then there's a letter by Guattari somewhere saying, immediate, even before the book is published, Deleuze starts work on the nomadism chapter of A Thousand Plateaus, as if they had realized, or at least Deleuze had realized, that the typology they had in Anti-Oedipus was insufficient, and they needed this other thing, the nomadic war machine, to kind of complete the picture. But it's, it's a similar structure of, you know, and they say the social formations are not some sort of evolutionary developmental scheme. They are social 
natural formations that coexist. Mm-hmm. And they coexist because what they're really interested in trying to chart out in, in those books are the resonances and becomings that happen between these types of social formations. So we still have primitive societies or territories now. We still have state formations, obviously, and war machines, but they're simply concepts that coexist with each other. And in any given assemblage that you're looking at, the point is those are concepts you can use to look at the given assemblage and see where the dimensions are, where maybe there's an overcoding state, but maybe there's lines of flight here that constitute a kind of war machine, how capitalism works and how its decoding mechanisms work in one way or, or another and so forth. And I think what is, is philosophy operates in the same register. They separate out science, philosophy, and art, percepts, affects, concepts, or precisely because they want to see how these interact with each other and produce resonances and becomings between them that are never really, that are always unforeseen. And I think that is an influence of Guattari. And so I see what is philosophy is doing something very similar to what Deleuze and Guattari had already started to do in, in capitalism and schizophrenia. In a way, they're both books about time, but for Deleuze and Guattari, time is much more, they see time much more under the mode of coexistence than succession. You know, time is a becoming, but it comes out of these coexistent things that produces something new. And that's really what time is and not some sort of linear successive uh, development. So I see there's a parallel between both of those books. And that's why I do think, however it worked itself out, Guattari is a big presence in what is philosophy, I would say. I love that. You heard it here first, uh, folks. It's helping me put these things in a new light and it'll, it'll enrich my experience when I go back. And you know, Cooper and I are still working on, we've got the last two little subsections of chapter three of Anti-Oedipus to do. And then, and then the, the really, I don't want to say it's the manifesto of schizoanalysis, but it's the, the fourth chapter where, you know, things get serious. So we're looking forward to that. And I'll, I'll bring that to, to our reading when we, um, when we do that. But for, but for a moment, I, I guess we can pause on Deleuze or we can sort of use him as a springboard. I want to know a little bit about your translations. Now, am I right to understand that one of your first translations is Nietzsche and the Vicious Circle? It was published in 97. So you would have been finishing your, or you would have just finished your dissertation, or maybe you were working on it at the same time. Do you want to tell us where you got inspired to work on Klosowski and translating? Yeah, I think it's probably similar to things you've said to me about what got you into translation. It's just, I wanted to read these books. Mm -hmm. And um, one way to read the book carefully is to do a translation of a book. So the first book I I translated was actually Deleuze's book on Francis Bacon. But there was a long delay in that book getting published. It took 12 years for it to get published because of copyright issues that Deleuze had to get involved in. And then Deleuze died and, and that threw the situation into some turmoil. So I'd worked on that and then decided um, I wanted to do Klesowski. And I think it was me who approached the publisher because Klesowski was not a big name. He's still not a very well-known name, right. but he was such an influence on Deleuze, such an influence on Klesowski, that I really wanted to read the Nietzsche book and thought it was an important book and wanted to spend the, the time translating it. You were saying about Klesowski and Nietzsche and the Vicious Circle. Klesowski's book on Nietzsche was the hardest translation I'd ever done by far. I still, it's a book, I'm sure you've had this too, this experience as a translator when you look back on uh, old you know, translations, uh, sometimes you think, oh, that's done pretty well. And then other times you you cringe and say, yes. oh, I can't believe I translated it that way. Yes. And I don't think most people can see that except the translator mm-hmm. you know, themselves looking back on their own work. 
But most books, I, I think, you know, I have the first experience. I think, well, this is okay. But there are points in Klosowski where I read a sentence and I, I don't even know what it means in, uh, yeah, <laughs> in yeah. my translation. Uh, but that's because Klosowski wrote in, um, I don't know how to put a parallel to it, but it's it's almost like he's someone who was interested in, you know, the Marquis de Sade and, you know, perversion and, you know, these very avant-garde subjects. But he wrote, the only English parallel I can think of is King James English. Interesting. He writes, you know, in French, they're literary yes. uh, styles and tenses that are only used in written French and not in spoken French. And even that now has kind of disappeared. People don't write in those literary styles and tenses so much. But he was deeply into that. And so the texts, even and even in France, people would say, like, Klosowski is so difficult to read because it is like <laughs> reading the King James Bible, but right. King James Bible talking about uh, the Marquis de Sade. So tra- <laughs> translating that into English was a challenge. And I had to make a decision early on not to try to reproduce the King James English side and just make it as comprehensible as possible. But it was hard. It was a long book, a challenging book. And yeah, I would say it's the most complicated uh, translation I've ever done. And I might add, Klesowski did the opposite. He translated Virgil. Nietzsche. Oh, he translated translated Virgil. He translated lots of things, but he translated Virgil. And I think he did the same thing backwards. He wanted to translate Virgil in such a way that somehow in the French, it gave you the impression of what the Latin of Virgil would feel like. And so he deliberately kind of distorted the French in order to give it. it a kind of explicit Latinate quality. So it was, it was a quite explicit writing style that he had. And I admire it a lot. I just thought for me, there's no way I could reproduce that in my translation. And I, I thought the content was so extraordinary that I just wanted to make it as accessible in English as, as possible. But that's why at times I look back and think, it's, I still have that kind of King James sense in the translation somehow. Maybe Kind of a bad. vicious experience, huh? It was a vicious experience. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How does that compare to living currency which you translated with uh vernon sisney and who, who was the other translator i apologize I uh nikolai marar who's at the okay. university of oregon we had vernon on also about a month ago and we got yes, to talk a little bit that. about this so how did that compare you know and, and you were obviously more experienced and um and so maybe it wasn't as, as difficult in that sense but is it a different style as well uh, it was great uh, translating with other people. I do think translation is wonderful as a work by committees. Frankly, that's why the King James Bible was so good. It was mm-hmm. translated by a committee, and there's lots of people who had a hand in it. Uh, when you're running solo, you know, you get a lot of things right, but you know, you can miss things. So that was actually a wonderful experience because Vern and Nikolai, we worked together. I had experienced translating Klesowski. I can't remember how we did it, but I think I did an initial translation, but then they weighed in on what was good and bad. And slowly, I think of it as kind of a, a camera, you know, a photograph coming into focus. Yeah. Yeah, you know, initial, the initial translation was fairly unfocused, but the more we worked on it, the more it became uh, clear. So it really helped for me, me, I think, to translate with other people. I don't know if you've had that experience as a translator or if you've done I, it solo, but I have gotten to translate with another thinker, and I do think that there is a sense in which, whether it be in the editing stage or especially in the editing stage, when you're able to to really get down to brass tacks and you're not necessarily always compromising. It's really this kind of negotiation and it really does come down to what exactly are we privileging at the moment? Because, you know, obviously the kind of teleological goal is to have a a style if, if possible. But on the other hand, there are times when things can be questions about technical terms. Idiomaticity is always, in my view, 
one of the things that I try to put at the very top, how would a French thinker say this if they were an English native and not try to capture the Frenchness of it in a certain way that makes it feel sort of makes it, you know, sludgy and stumbling. You know, it's always for me about the legibility and, and not not breaking that immerse that immersion for for the reader, but having so, having another pair of eyes, having another point of view, and being able to reach a resonance, as you say, that normally in the best conditions can only lead to a better a better work. Yeah, you can tell early novice translators, and I was the same way. When you read the English, you can feel the French underneath it. Same, you know, an important point I reached. I remember. I can't remember the word, but I remember realizing the correct translation that I was looking for required an English word that did not appear in any dictionary I was consulting, uh, English-French dictionary, you know, which, mm. which would have the French word and then possible English word. I realized I got to a point where I needed a different word that was that was not in any of the dictionaries I was looking at. And then I realized that was okay because, yeah. you know, it was the context of the sentence that required this other word and dictionaries give you options. And then I thought, okay, I can do this. Like I have this right as a translator mm -hmm. to realize that the dictionaries don't necessarily cover all the possible ranges of possible translations for the word I'm, I'm working on. I, I wish I could remember it because it was a very distinctive moment I found, I found in my translating career to realize I had the freedom to do that. And indeed it was a necessity because yeah. none, of, none of the other words really working for what the sentence was trying to convey. But it's a lot of work. It's hard work translation. And I'll just say this to people who are listening. You don't appreciate the nights translators go to bed thinking of how to translate some particular phrase in their mind that they just can't get right. And um, my experience was the first half of translating a book indeed got me into the book more yes. and I understood its contents more. But the second half was really just knocking my head against mm -hmm. the two languages and trying to figure out the best way to render a sentence. And at that point, the content disappeared. And it was really this focus on the language of these two languages and trying to get them to, you know, work together. To resonate. Together. Yeah, exactly. Reminds me of finding the, it's finding the puzzle piece almost. It's like you have to find the right, what fits best in this little section of the, of the text. That's exactly right. Yeah. And then realizing that piece that fits none of the dictionaries have that <laughs> yeah, was right that was a moment of revelation to me <laughs> well well as as an example stuffing um, the piece in there right in the gap <laughs> yeah because that's what it felt like beforehand like <laughs> just pounding it in but it's just not fitting as an example i noticed that in your essays when you discuss one of the most famous concepts in Deleuze and Guattari's work assemblage you are always careful to add the french and i wonder if that's one of those words that kind of like dispositif is more or less untranslatable and that maybe assemblage overcodes it and gives it perhaps too much of a, even if Deleuze talks about constructivism, there's too maybe too much of an, an engineering aspect that might downplay the, perhaps the musical notion of an arrangement. Do you have any opinions on, on this word? I, I've actually talked to translators about it and, and there's no perfect word for it, but do you, do you have this... Uh, any opinions on that one example? I agree with everything you said. Assemblage is fine. That's what Brian Nasumi chose. And I think there's nothing better. Arrangement is another possibility, which carries different connotations, as yes. you say, kind of musical connotations. Assemblage, you know, the downside, maybe it's too um, atomistic. It seems like you're taking parts and assembling them together. And while that's part of what it means, it's, it's not the entire right. meaning of the term. But it is, yeah, it's one of those French terms that there's really no adequate English yes. 
parallel because it's used, you know, the arrangement of a battalion of troops or the arrangement of my stamp collection or the way I arrange the books on my shelves. You know, it can go in lots of different directions. And then Deleuze and Guattari pick up on those connotations and then give it their own philosophical right. meaning because, of course, they're creating their own concept from an everyday concept in, in French. So I agree with what you're saying. That's one of the really tough terms, like dispositif as well in Foucault's work, that um, there's just no adequate translation. Assemblage is good, no quarrel with it. But that's one reason. You know, I often think when you put as a translator the French word in brackets, it's, you know, it's kind of the bad conscience of the translator realizing yes. no translation is ever adequate. So I try not to do that too much. Same. But I do I do think there are occasions where, you know, a technical term of a, of a thinker just, you need to be reminded of it because this English translation isn't quite covering everything. So I think that's probably why I, I put agencement in brackets, even you know when I use the term uh, assemblage in English. I guess that, that I picked up on that because I do notice that you, you rarely do that. And I, I have taken to the part where I, I don't like to do it as a bad conscience, or it is almost like you've lost this battle on the other hand, it is kind of, and I, I agree, I think assemblage is the best uh, translation, even if there are currents underlying it. And I think that Masumi himself tackles this in the uh, in his translator's introduction, doing the due diligence. So. Yeah. But there is this sense in which, for some of these words, you know, short of, and sometimes you just have to reproduce the French itself and transliterate it, because it's kind of like the, uh, it's kind of like when you were discussing this classic problem in the history of the calculus with differential equations that it was this problem for hundreds of years with the quintic right the and finding a solution and and really the solution became well actually unsolvability is the solution itself right that the, the problem that is a positive characteristic to be unsolvable and not this like negative thing that that just that implies the understanding hasn't reached the you know hasn't gone far enough so there's an unsolvability to a certain extent to some of these some of these terms in translation and that's one of the great things about that notion of a problematic you know, that it's, we tend to think of a problem as there only to give you the solution, because frankly, that's how most of our exams work at the university. You know, right. you ask a first grader, two plus three is how much? And then the answer is five. So the problem is there to be solved. And the whole point of the quintic, you know, as you say, is that, um, I forget who it was, it was um, who proved, Abel, I think, that proves yes. that there are problems that for which there's no solution, but you can nonetheless say what the conditions of the problem are, even though that mm -hmm. problem doesn't have a solution, but you can nonetheless lay out the problem. And that's often what differential equations do, particularly non-linear equations. You can lay out a system, but there's no solution, but nonetheless, you can get the differential equations of a system, even though you can't necessarily solve it precisely because the series diverge. And uh, yes, I think you're right. That's entirely applicable then to translation because, you know, the word agencement is a problematic and there's various solutions, but um, none of them entirely adequate to the problem. So on this, uh, we, we talked a little bit about Klosowski. You've translated two of Deleuze's works, Logic of Sensation, which you, which I didn't know that there was this, uh, I didn't know this interesting chronology, right, that you had done that earlier, and, and then there was the holdup. You've, you've also translated Miche Serre. When you were talking about Klosowski and his style, I've gotten the chance to translate. It was from his book on kind of the origins of geometry. And mm -hmm. even when he's talking about something that seems dry, like math, Serre has this style. Because I was thinking of this when you were talking about Klosowski and his style. It's different, though, but it's, he has this eminently literary 
and poetic style that's just unique to him. Do you have any Completely. thoughts about about Sayre? And even thinking of Sayre's relationship to Deleuze and his very moving homage to Deleuze after he passed and Sayre refusing to believe that Deleuze <laughs> would have committed suicide, that he opened the window and needed a breath of fresh air because as we all know, he had, he had breathing problems and that it was just this horrible accident because he says it went contrary to everything he ever wrote in his philosophy, the affirmationism and all this. Do you have any thoughts about, about Miche Serre? Well, let me say a word on Deleuze's suicide. I, yes. uh, shortly after it, I was at a, a gathering, I think at the university, but I, I met someone in the course of the conversation asked me what I did and I mentioned Deleuze and that he committed suicide and he committed it by um, you know, throwing himself out the window. And he looked at me and said, oh, did he have emphysema? And I said, why, yes, he did. How did you know that? He goes, well, I, that's, I'm, a, I'm a doctor and I deal with you know, pulmonary diseases. And he says, it's fairly common for emphysema patients to, you know, you can't get air into your lungs. And it's almost an unconscious thing where like, what's the best way to get air into your lungs, but through a kind of free fall. And I don't know if this is true, but he told me that pulmonary, you know, wings in hospitals are either on the first floor for this reason, or they have bars on the windows. Wow. Prevent patients from doing this uh, precise thing. He says it's not conscious. They're not committing suicide. They're just desperate to get air in their lungs because they are are suffocating. So I have no idea. <laughs> um, I love I, that. I have not heard that the Lewis left any any you know. Uh, you know, suicide note or any indication he was going to do this. So here again, I really don't know definitively what happened, but this story made me think maybe it's just part of Deleuze's ailment. That yes. It's something that, um, you know, emphysema patients tend to do, and it's something that uh, happened to him. But yes, uh, Michel Serre and Deleuze were fairly good friends, as from what I understand, late in life. Michel has his own particular style, as all philosophers do. As you probably know, at a certain point, he just got fed up with academia, mm. and he stopped using footnotes in his texts which is maddening at some points because yes. reading his text, I can feel who he's reading and who he's referring to. And sometimes he'll, he'll say it explicitly, but rarely, you know, and so you don't really have a guidepost to the books he's reading. And Deleuze is the opposite. He was a crazy footnoter. So you always know the books Deleuze is reading. And I think that's helped rehabilitate some of the sort of minor thinkers that he mm -hmm. read that people have gone back to now and who become more major figures like Raymond Rier or Klosowski or Leroy Garand, who none of whom were really minor figures. They were all well-known at the time, but kind of forgotten. But because Deleuze footnoted them, people go back to them and have started reading them. Michel Serre just gave up doing that. And my sense is he thought himself as a kind of modern modern day Montaigne, you know, who, mm -hmm. who wrote essays. And I think he saw himself as, as an essayist. And yes, he was widely read and, um, you know, encyclopedic in his mm -hmm. aspirations as a philosopher. But I think he also wanted to be read and to be accessible to people who weren't academic philosophers. So at some point in career, he's gave, he gave up that kind of academic writing machine, I think because he didn't feel like he was that well I don't say wasn't well-respected. He's a very well-respected philosopher, but wasn't, I don't know how to put it, taking seriously as a philosopher. It's again, hard, hard to know where to put him, right? In, yeah. in the canon, kind of, I mean, in a different way than Deleuze, <laughs> but it's hard to know where to situate him. 
Yeah, and he's always listed. I felt Deleuze was the same way. You know, he was always listed as some of the in list of the important French philosophers, but then rarely commented on. You know, it was mm. always early on. It was Foucault and Derrida. They were the yes. people. You know, people were reading the philosophers that people were reading, and then there were these other names that you would see, but no one really read them. In part because they weren't always translated into English, and it took a long time for Michel Serre, Michel Serre's work to get translated in, into English. Frankly, the book that really got me going on Michel Serre, I'd read a lot of his earlier stuff, like The Origin of Geometry and things like that. Mm-hmm. But it was really his book, Common Essence, uh, which was, okay. I think, in 2001. And it was the first of a four-part, not a trilogy. What's the four-part version of a trilogy? Would it be? Um, a, it's not a quadrature. Would it be? It would, I don't know. The, quadrature, the, maybe. That's more of a square. It'll come to us later, I'm sure. But it's four books, which really I, I thought were fantastic. I think it's the best stuff Sarah has done. And he says at one point, it's really where he started writing in his own name. And it's stuff on evolutionary theory and cognitive science. And it's really synthetic in what I found was an incredibly revealing way. It's still a book I go back to frequently, Hominescence. And then the following book was uh, uh, The Incandescent, mm. which is also a wonderful text. So, yeah, I really hope Michel Serre, he, he deserves to be read much more widely than, yeah. than he has been hitherto, which is, I think, why I helped translate one of his shorter texts, which in English is Thumbelina, but in French, the French title is Petite Poussette, which is Little Thumb. And it mm. was his image of people, you know, on their smartphones using their thumbs. Oh, my God, uh, that's great. To, that's move, to move around. And it was his kind of homage to this new generation, Generation Z, who's grown up with the Internet and smartphones and, mm-hmm. and how they are literally almost a new form of human humanity now because they're engaging with an entirely different form of technology, different access to information, have this externalized memory that they can consult at any time. And he's, he was quite old when he wrote that book, but he, he was quite positive about the younger generation and what they're facing. You know, old the kids are going to be all right. Yeah, the kids the are going to be all right. You know, and he wasn't those old, one of those old people say, you know, when I was a kid, you know, we did things this way. And it was much better. <laughs> he's quite the opposite. He's very generous in trying to just sort out what's happening to this uh, you know, younger generation. Well, two things that come to mind. One, I think it would be called a tetralogy. It just it just hit me because yes, thank you. Uh, because Laurel has one of his recent books. It's huge. It's called Tetralogos. It just came to me. But uh, the other and, and and Sarah also had. I'm not sure if it was four or five volumes with um, the Hermes books. Maybe it was actually five. So that would be a. Well, now, now I don't know. I don't know five. Uh, I think you're right. The, the Quintic. Um, yes, <laughs> <but> <laughs> the Quintic. The other thing I was going to say is what the two texts that I always go back to with Serre is uh, the Parasite and Genesis, which, you know, Genesis was one of those books that really got me into him. And you could see that literary style. You can see that absence of citations, which Larwell also does. He likes to make allusions, but no, he doesn't really like to cite and footnote, which as you said, can be very frustrating and maddening. But Deleuze always likes to give us the breadcrumbs, the trail to go back. And that's one of the ways where, you know, we spoke earlier about getting introduced to Deleuze I mean, one of the ways that I tried to do it and what inspired me to translate was these breadcrumbs to figures like Rouye, who now, you know, neofinalism has come out, which you wrote a, a wonderful essay kind of celebrating that and, and showing why that's so important for understanding, for example, what is philosophy with the notion of absolute forms and absolute survey, but also uh, John Roth and another translator recently uh, released the Genesis of Living Forms, which was the very first text I cracked open to translate. I was like, who is this Rie guy? And what is he thinking about? And I was thinking that a dream translation for me, and this seems very strange and off the wall, but 
I don't know if any publisher would ever be interested in it. I've asked Robin McKay over at Urbanomic if he would be interested, but at the time he was trying to take a different route than merely just a... But it's this book on Homer, this notion of Homer as as a young girl. as Woman, yeah. And he gets that, uh, I think that's first... Oh, I forget. Is it Samuel Butler who first kind of has this hypothesis? Yes, exactly. <laughs> that work, it is one of those things that it comes into my brain and starts to take over because I start to think about when I was a grad student and, and taught, I had to teach 101 comparative lit courses and I would always do the Odyssey. It's one of those texts that I've just always loved to teach. And so just the notion that not only the notion that Homer was the Homer of the Odyssey was a young girl or was this princess at a royal court, but the notion that it was written and not chanted. And I, I have thought about this a lot about, for example, the different temporal shifts in the Odyssey are completely different than the kind of linear continuity we see in the Iliad. So I wanted to ask your thoughts on Ruye, and also do you have either a dream text uh, in the future that you would like to tackle if you get done with the Deleuze seminars, which I know are <laughs> taking up a lot of your time, or if you could go back in the past hundred years and, um, and have translated a text, you know, do you have, do you have these thoughts about like what you would have liked to have done if it weren't done? I do. Although I always think of them in terms of what I would like someone else to translate okay. uh, rather than what I want to translate. Good. Because uh, it's such a, yeah, it's a, I'll say it again, it's a labor of love to do these translations, especially academic texts like this. But the one I would like to see done, and I, I hope you get the, uh, the Rier done on, on Homer, which would be fabulous mm -hmm. to have out. But the one I would like done is, I think his first book, which was Elements of Psychobiology, which was really um, one of his first books that kind of laid down the groundwork for all the work that came afterward. So that's yeah. And I've, I've hoped someone would translate at some point. But um, yeah, and, and you pointed out that that it's important for Deleuze, even if he doesn't cite it as much as neo-finalism or as the genesis of living forms, you pointed out that I believe it is in Difference of Repetition where he cites it at least once. And, it, and you say that he kind of gets the basis for differentiation from Ruye. Is this correct for differentiation with a T or maybe with a C, right? Um, you know, there's a chapter in that, uh, the book Elements of Psychobiology called The Problems of Actualization, which has to do with embryology, so how an embryo gets actualized. But of course, right. the whole, there's a whole chapter in Difference in Repetition, which takes embryology quite seriously. And I'm pretty sure that comes fairly directly from Rier. And the whole uh, distinction between the virtual and actual, well, it comes from many sources, but I think mm -hmm. one of them is coming from embryology and what Rier does with this here. And, you know, embryology, it's also the source of the very concept of the body without organs. Because right. The egg is a body without organs. He literally gets that phrase from Antonin Artaud, but that's a kind of schizophrenic use of right. the idea of the body without organs in the sense that the organism that I am consigned to is a kind of judgment of God, and it could have been organized in a different way. So there are a lot of sources of that. But yes, I think Rier, and I, I think this early book, which is why I'd love to see it translated, I think had a big influence on Deleuze, even though he cites some of the later texts of Rier, because that's where these concepts get worked out in more detail in Rier's own corpus. But I think a lot of it comes from elements of psychobiology. I think from my point of view, it's a very important text that certainly deserves to be translated at some point. And you pointed out something I didn't know, which was that he wrote this while he's a prisoner of war. 
He was, yeah, prisoner of war. Uh, you know, it wasn't a death camp. It's where they put French officers okay, in France, okay. I believe, to wait out the war. So they they had quite a bit of freedom in the camps to do the work they they wanted to do. I believe um, Paul Ricoeur was also in one of these camps and did okay. a lot of his some of his work early on in, in one of the prisoner of war camps. And Sartre, too, wrote Being a Nothingness, right, as a prisoner of war, if I believe so uh, that may be the case yeah it was not uncommon you know it was uh, it was a difficult period for everyone during during the war but fruitful for some people who were in a situation where they could actually do work which was not of course everyone excellent I know that we've had you for close to two hours and I don't want to keep you from the rest of your day so we can start to kind of wind down I do want to let coop if you had any questions yeah. or if you want to pull from my list or if you want to pull from your concerns, um, sure. please. Well, I just wanted to say, Dan, that I really, the politics chapter on the essays in Deleuze was a magnificent exposition of anti-Oedipus. Reading that the other day, like I was just blown away. I was sharing with Taylor, even I was texting him as I was reading. I was like, oh my God, I wish I had read this before we had started doing our series on the book itself. But yeah, just magnificently done. Super fascinating book the Kantian influence, but I I don't want to necessarily go there. I just wanted to let you know that my question would be more towards, so as a sort of a frustrated filmmaker, let's say, which is actually sort of why one of the reasons I started the podcast is if you, and this is very broad, this can be very broadly, but I'm just kind of curious about your thoughts on the cinema, not only cinema one and two, but I guess the lectures and I guess the value or, you know, just discuss that just, I'm sort of curious. I've delved into them a little bit on a few specific movies, like last year at Marion bad. I I did a podcast on that one time. And so I've got some exposure, but I'm just kind of curious, you know, what your thoughts are. That's a great question because I find those two volumes on cinema, the movement image and the time image to be incredibly complicated books, mm-hmm. partly because they're hard to read because they almost read like course notes, yeah. which they are in a way summarizing what he was giving in his weekly lectures, which lasted four years. So it's again, this compression into the books of lectures that were much more immense. Although we do have all of those lectures and right. the process are being translated and you can tell there's a lot more in the lectures than wind up in the book. So that's the first thing that makes them difficult. The second thing, is that in the lectures, Deleuze oscillates between just doing philosophy and then going to the films. Mm -hmm. Because on the one hand, on the philosophy side, it's a kind of reading of Bergson or a rereading of Bergson Mm -hmm. that he's going to read cinema from. But at the same time, he has readings going back into the history of philosophy of Plato and Plotinus, some of which have no parallels, even in the published works. Mm. And it's Deleuze working out his philosophy of time. And I am fascinated by this. I just tried to finish a paper on the philosophy of time, which I still find completely inadequate because there's so much in these cinema lectures that I haven't had time to kind of process. And I I think he goes in new directions from what he started doing in the philosophy of time in difference and repetition. There's whole new material here because, you know, it's what, 15 years later and he's Mm -hmm. doing doing new things. But at the same time, he's thinking through the philosophy of time and thinking through Bergson by thinking of through cinema, because cinema is made up of images, but images that move and that move in time. Hence the title of the books, Movement Image and, and the Time Image. And he genuinely thinks of filmmakers as thinkers, as important as philosophers. They just happen to think 
in terms of images, right. whereas philosophers think in terms of concepts. So I think it's one of the reasons why film studies people don't, you know, often don't quite know what to do with Deleuze's right. book on, on film, because they're not really film studies. They're Deleuze treating filmmakers as thinkers mm -hmm. and seeing what they're doing with their images and what he yeah. can, you know, draw from that and learn from that philosophically. At the same time, Deleuze, I don't know, he cites, I think, over 700 films in those two yeah. uh, volumes. And I oh. you know, genuinely don't know when he had the time to see all those movies, right. but I, I suspect he did over, over the years. I'm not sure he rewatched all of them while he was uh, right. you know, writing the book. I think he knew them. I think he spent a lot of time reading Cahiers de Cinema and, and, and mm -hmm. reading about cinema and recalled what he had watched. But just mastering, I mean, there were years after those books came out, I just used that as an excuse to see as many movies as possible because I'd say, oh, I'm doing research that's by great. watching all these <laughs> movies. But that's what makes it their difficult text. He's doing philosophy, philosophy of time, but at the same time, working that out through you know, these considerations of these films and filmmakers, but he's treating them as philosophers. That's what makes it a difficult text, I think, for me at least. Very nice. Yeah, and one of the suggestions that Cooper had was that we could every now and then do an episode on one of those one of the films that he writes and maybe situated in in the context. And I remember one of the very first seminars that I that I read of Deleuze was um was one of the cinema lectures. And I remember his discussion of taxi driver and it just it just really tickled me because so many of the films he cites are these kind of more classical i say classical usually not always not always american film and not something that i consider to be still a very popular film so to so see something that that i to see like oh he's actually talking about a film i've seen and i enjoy <laughs> That was something that always that always tickled me. You know, someone at some point started a web page a few years ago. I don't know what happened to it, but where they tried to get clips of every film that Deleuze refers to so that you could click on it and see the scene he's talking about. Oh, As wow. He often talks about a whole film, but sometimes just a particular scene from the film that he deems important for whatever he's writing about. But um, I'm sure that runs into copyright problems, so that'll probably right. not, yeah, not right. come to fruition. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And that's, <clears throat> I'm of the opinion, and as I, I've already talked about my influence by like the Lacanian bootleggers, I'm, I'm of the opinion that it's fair use, you know, it's copyright be damned, right? This is all for the furtherance of thinking. So, uh, you know, that's, but one of the things you said was interesting about how film students don't necessarily know what to do with the cinema books. Do you have a sense <clears throat> in which Deleuze studies too has sometimes had a hard time dealing with the cinema books as well and where to put them and where to, how to situate them. I sometimes, things can be different now, but when I first was really getting into the scholarship, this was something that sometimes felt as much kind of like alighting the G out of D and G. Sometimes the cinema books are put to the side, but you're saying very much that they are works of philosophy too, and it's a different medium. So they should be, uh, it should be taken seriously. That's how I see it. But of course, I'm saying that as a philosopher, I like reading them as works of philosophy that uses the filmmakers as philosophers. I don't know how to answer how film studies people then should incorporate it into their world because they'd have to find their own way, their own way of doing that. There are people like James Williams has a fabulous book on Deleuze's philosophy of time, mm. but he sort of makes, he really focuses on difference in repetition and logic of sense and has a sense that not much new comes in the time image book, even though it's devoted to time. I'm not sure I agree with that entirely. I think there are new things that appear there that weren't necessarily brought to the fore in difference and repetition, like this whole idea that Kant marks a break in the time movement relation before Kant time is defined as a measure of motion, you know, a day mm -hmm. is just measuring you know, the movement of the earth in years, the movement of the earth around the sun and so forth. That really changes with Kant. And um, 
It's very Deleuzean. He says, up till that point, time was thought of in relation to a prior concept, which was movement. And he wants to think time as a concept of its own. It's essentially what he does in difference and repetition. Both of those concepts normally are thought of in terms of identity. If there's a difference between things, it's because, well, there are two things that have their own identity. And then you're trying to say what the difference is between them. Or if there's repetition, it's because there's something X that you're repeating, X1, X2, X3, X4, but the repetition is tied to some sort of prior identity identity. So the whole point of difference and repetition was trying to think difference and repetition on their own as Mm -hmm. concepts that weren't subordinated to a prior identity. What is it to think difference in itself and repetition in itself? And it's a very complicated thing because to think difference in itself means you think of a relation because difference is a relation, but you think of that relation quite apart from the terms that it's supposedly relating. You know, it's a relation that has no relata. And it's somewhat paradoxical to think in in those terms because it's not intuitive at all. And I think that's what comes to the fore in the time image and the movement image, that he's really trying to think the concept of time where it's not subordinated to the concept of movement. And that's a very difficult thing to do, the same way it's difficult to think different in a repetition as concepts on their own. But for me, that really didn't become obvious as a part of Deleuze's project until the time image and the movement image came out, because then it's clear what he's trying to do. Cinema, films, are images that move, and so the movement image is an obvious way to approach film, but then they move in time, and how image, how filmmakers explore the nature of time, and not simply the nature of movement. And you could say still probably, you know, 99% of the movies that come out are still tied to to movement and aren't tied to time. But uh, Deleuze is saying that's really where the, the future of cinema, he thinks, lies, and that the history of cinema kind of recapitulated the history of philosophy in this kind of accelerated manner that was after the war, and maybe because of the war, that explorations of time came to the fore in people like Orson Welles, Tarkovsky, René, and others. So I think there's a lot there that still needs to be explored from my point of view. Yeah, he, think, he cites Wells something like 140 times, I think, in cinema, too. So I've gone on a wow. Wells kick. We watched FS for Fake. We were doing Symbolic Exchange and Death from Baudrillard. Uh-huh. And I thought that was a really good exploration of kind of the Baudrillard and sim- simulacra. And I love that film, too. And uh, if I can just say, it's one thing I think what's important about the philosophy of time, because I think it's really at the heart of Deleuze's philosophy, because once time comes to the fore, then he asks the question, well, what happens when you eject time into concepts? You know, so for philosophy for a long time, you know, certainly in Plato, if something is true, it's true for all times and all places. So truth is something, you know, eternal. It's eternally truth. That's what sort of what's implied in the very notion of truth. And I think Deleuze's whole definition of philosophy, that philosophy is the creation of concepts. Another way of saying what he's up to there is he's injecting time into the nature of concepts themselves. And for me, this became a big problem in writing about Deleuze, because as mm-hmm. I said, my initial attempt to you know, work on Deleuze in my dissertation, I tried to present Deleuze as a system, because he said philosophy is a system. He believes philosophy is systematic. But then he immediately adds, but the system must be heterogenetic, meaning it must generate the heterogeneous. It must produce the new. It has to be productive of difference. In other words, it has to be constantly changing. And I realized that's why my initial intuition to write on Deleuze as a systematic philosopher in a way failed, because really it's a system that's constantly in motion. And Deleuze's own concepts are changing constantly throughout his corpus. And if they weren't changing, his whole system would fail because... Mm -hmm. That's what it means to be a philosopher of difference. So the concepts that appear in, in like difference and repetition, for instance, simulacra, that kind of disappear in right. the rest of his work and get taken up with other concepts. So the real difficulty in writing on Deleuze is that it's a philosopher, you know, it's a philosophy in motion. He has concepts 
but they're constantly changing, not willy-nilly. They're changing because the minute he looks at a different problem, even if he's using the same concept that he developed earlier to address this new problem, the nature of that concept is going to change because it's now dealing with a new, a new problem. So I think this is just starting to happen in Deleuze studies where really people are starting to chart out sort of the development of Deleuze's own thought. It happens with every philosopher, but in Deleuze, I think it's it's explicit. It's it's the very nature of his philosophical program that his concepts could not stay the, <laughs> the same. Yeah. And we're constantly going through this, uh, you know, heterogenesis, you know, the production of, of the new and um, working that out, how to think temporarily that way or how to write mm-hmm. a book that's kind of temporal well, it sort of boggles the mind on how one one goes about that in right. a concrete manner but Deleuze somehow managed to do that philosophically and I think it's one of the remarkable aspects of his uh, you know philosophical corpus I've been thinking uh, about how to translate something like anti-Oedipus into a film or oh man yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or a comic book that's a different idea. Have have an idea for Lacan comic book, but that's a, that's a whole different ball of wax. But I don't know. It's interesting. I think to me as a filmmaker, one of my favorite aspects of it is the editing. And so perhaps that is where ta- because you have all these events that have occurred could be months apart, years apart, etc. Right. But you can sort of create this sort of universal like this whole of the film itself out of these disparate elements, which is just, I think that the film kind of comes together, especially, you know, something like F is for fake, that movie without the editing doesn't exist. Like the editing is the film. I think that's brilliant because I think that's an exact parallel to what goes on in philosophy in logic, because logic is really a way of telling you what are the rules for stringing together a series of propositions? You know, how do you say one is derived from the other? So you can say there is a kind of movement of thought that happens in logic and logic gives you the rules for the proper movement of thought. But the parallel to that in filmmaking is editing. It's like, how do you get from one image to the other? And, you know, there, there are rules for that if you want a kind of strict, strict, you know, narrative that right. uh, is going to guide your, your editing. But that's not the only way, of course, to you know, link together images. So I, I completely agree that editing then is, is almost this parallel to logic, but logic is telling you the proper way you know, to link together propositions. But there are lots of other ways to do it. And the right. parallel in, is in filmmaking is editing, like what's guiding your choice of going from this image to this other image. And, uh, you know, that's the question of the editor. I like almost like it's almost like being a a god creating a small, a world (laughs) lit. It really is. I mean, that's the best way I can describe the feeling you get of, and especially at the end when there's a unity, it's incredibly satisfying. It's very gratifying. No experience like it that I've ever had, I think. I can imagine. Yeah. Nothing parallel in philosophy, really. Well, I'm waiting for the anti-Oedipus film. (laughs) Right? Yeah. I'll have to think of how to do that correctly because, you know, you can't really do it straightforwardly. It has to be but you can't, I don't know how to make that work exactly. You got you know to I mean? start with Fraber's anus, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's like got to be one of the, the first uh, <laughs> the first things. Just a few more points and, and, and maybe one or two sort of happy-go-lucky questions. I was thinking when, when we were discussing, you and Cooper discussing editing and and this notion that Deleuze, you know, it's, it's, it's the that needs to change. And therefore, this is why it has to be heterogenesis. And he even says it. Potentially, this has never been done. That's his way, I think, of getting around Nietzsche's wariness about a will to a system, which he thinks is uh, is kind of a sign of bad faith or something. So, because if the system doesn't pre-exist, then there's a way in which it's no longer um, kind of violating Nietzsche's intuition that that he distrusts systematic thinkers. So, I, I I like this this notion of editing as a concrete example of a certain form of heterogenesis that we we can kind of grasp and um, 
Well, I think you're right there. You know, it's Deleuze creating a new concept, you know, when he says, oh, I believe in philosophy of a, as a system, you know, then you're, as you say, your Nietzschean ears prick up and say, really? But then he immediately says, but I think of system in a new way, you know, it's mm-hmm. a new concept of what a system is. It's a system that's in constant movement, a heterogenesis. So then he just says, um, well, I'm just changing the concept of what a system is <laughs> mm-hmm. in order yeah. to retain that. So um, it's where Deleuze is sort of ingenious and uh, at the same time, playful in a way like yeah i believe in philosophy as a system but it's not what you think a system is exactly and i guess just some some light questions to to end on and coop i'll let you also obviously you know inject one of the questions i had was do you have if deleuze is one of your favorite philosophers or your favorite you've obviously dedicated a lot of your time and passion and energy do you have another thinker and and bonus points if it's not necessarily, you know, in in Deleuze's uh, main sites. Do you have some, what are some other thinkers that, that you really turn to for inspiration? Well, that's a good question. So I've gotten into technology recently. So I'm teaching a course with grad courses, both graduate and undergraduate in the philosophy of technology. And a book that really got me into that. So it's in Deleuze's orbit, but Andre Leroy-Gouron's book, Gesture and Speech, mm-hmm. which I had on my shelves, but I had never read. And that book just blew me away. It's one yeah. of the best books I've read recently. So I can say that one changed me. I think that's what got me into Michel Serre, because that's why I say he doesn't footnote himself, but you can tell me Leroy-Gouron is all over Okay, uh, Michel Serre, and he's he's sort of citing him and thinking through the Walker on in his own way. And Raymond Riere, when these books finally got translated, you know, I could sort of read the French, but having the English really made them accessible to me. Yeah, and he's someone who also has changed my thinking. Not so much later, uh, Raymond Riere, where he starts writing political stuff, but I, I, right. I was in the sense, you know, it's it's somewhat reactive. I, I'd have to say mm-hmm. his his political writings, and I almost get the sense Deleuze was very influenced by him but didn't follow him in his later work in anti-Oedipus and capitalism and schizophrenia is sort of his version of the political writings that Riere started writing at more or less the same time, but we're going mm-hmm. in, a, in a very different direction. So there's a part where I too feel like I, I part with Riere and don't completely follow him in his entire trajectory. The Gnostic stuff. And I always, um, mm-hmm. always love the anecdote about his, basically, I don't know if it's scandalous or not and was scandalous or not in France, but this, the way in which he got his writings to a broader audience with a kind of hoax, the Gnosis of Princeton. Do you have a sense in how that played out? Or do you, do you want to say a little bit about that? I know you write about that in your essay on Rie, but uh, what is your sense of that that hoax? I don't know the whole story, but I think he felt like his work wasn't been, you know, well received, certainly wasn't received at all in America. And I think he hoaxes may be a strong word. I mm. think it was a literary device. So maybe mm-hmm. that's a more charitable <laughs> Uh, you know, to present his, you know, his own thinking under the guise of, you know, there are these hidden thinkers at Princeton and some of the major American universities who are thinking in this way. And he was presenting, you know, their hidden thought, their esoteric thought, which was really a way of presenting his own thought, but it was a way of getting it across a little more in a little more exciting manner. I mean, it did present a bit of a flash at the time, but I think in the end, it didn't quite um, have the effect he wanted it to have. You know, he's he's been done for a while. And it's only recently now that his works have even started to be translated translated into English, and and justly so. I I think what motivated him to do that was he was convinced of his own importance and uh, the importance of what he was trying to do, and I think was frustrated that it wasn't being as well read as he he might have liked. So that's my sense of why he, he did that little literary device. 
it's a great book though it does present his work in this kind of incredibly summary fashion which is quite uh, accessible right this this notion of i assume making up scientists in princeton who are sort of what you know you've got kind of cosmology and biology (laughs) and and all these different scientists who are this cabal of gnostic thinkers that he makes up i assume that part of that is was there kind of this thirst or interest from france and what was going on in american intellectual uh society that's an interesting question i I, i'm not sure i know the answer to i know it's only recently well let's say in the last 10 or 15 years that in philosophy say analytic philosophy has started coming into france and being well read and uh, well translated I don't really know. I mean, there must have been a sense that somehow what's going on in America is is, is important. If right. Lier, you know wanted to sort of present his own thought as uh, coming from you know, Gnostic uh, scientists and thinkers at Princeton. Yeah, that's kind of a cultural question. I don't actually know the answer to. That's that'd be interesting to find out more about. I guess I had always assumed that you know for the longest time, what gets imported into France is from Germany. Like we can think of Deleuze saying he was one of the last of the generations to really be schooled in the history of philosophy, and all the rage was the three H's. To which, you know, as you say, he adds that fourth H of Hume kind of going around the the German side. And and he himself, with his taste for literature, always seems to prefer the sort of Anglo-American literature to to the the classics of French. I guess Proust could be a... uh, obviously a, an exception to exception the rule. there yeah yeah but so i was thinking that maybe ruye thought well there's this thirst for sort of what's going on in in america so you know won't be a uh it won't be researchers over in um you know over in germany over in berlin it'll be it'll be over in princeton and, and the ivy <laughs> leagues but you know deleuze has this notion of geo philosophy and it is a question like even in europe it's germany and france that have the big philosophical traditions mm-hmm. you know people ask well why not you know, Spain or Portugal, or, and then the Scandinavian countries, they're really taken with analytic philosophy. Yes. So there's a sense of why in certain geographical areas philosophy takes hold. And why did it start in Greece, for that matter? But a, a subset of that question, I think exactly this issue you're raising, then it's an aspect of geophilosophy on how and why, you know, French philosophy became a big thing in the States. And then yes. why in return, it, it came much later, but then analytic philosophy started getting incorporated into France now. I mean, it's still a, a fairly um, big and And there, I think, you know, it's not that it's any one thing, but there's a way in which, um, and I'm sure like philosophers in France, maybe young philosophers are looking for another way of thinking than a kind of hegemonic, you know, way of doing French philosophy. And they find analytic philosophy as a kind of breath of fresh air, right? Doing something new, whereas analytic philosophers here, like I was trained in analytic philosophy. Oh, and so yeah. I mean, I was at University of Chicago, which is an analytic department, and I just discovered Deleuze while I was there. And luckily, there was a Foucault scholar. He was the one analytic person on, in the department, and he sort of gave me cover to work on Deleuze. And he knew I love it, Deleuze, and um, and was happy to have me working on him. But I was trained in analytic philosophy, and maybe it's the difference. Then I found French philosophy as a kind of breath of fresh air from this kind of rather stifling analytic way of doing philosophy. But it's not surprising that the opposite might take place. That mm-hmm. uh, younger students in France today find analytic philosophy a breath of fresh air. So I think it's an important aspect of geo <laughs> geo philosophy is how these influences move from one direction and back and forth, and particularly with regard to Europe and America, because there's a lot of interchange between them. I had a lot of other questions written down as you kind of see, but they were they were very much more inside baseball. And I think that that's something that that I would love to, I'm not going to discard it. I'd love to save for perhaps you know, having you back in the future sometime and hopefully sure. at that great. point, 
you know, because we, we, we didn't get to talk about, for example, Simon Don. I know that you and I could have a, have great discussions on that. And I'd um, love to do that. Yes. Yeah. So we're very thankful for, for your time. And I just, you know, wanted to reiterate how much your scholarship and your translations, your example inspired me and getting to talk to you more and meet you in this way and, and just you spending the time with us. It, you've made my year. <laughs> you've, made, you've made my day. Well, thanks for having me on, and I seriously hope we can do this again. And I want to thank you in particular, Taylor, for your translation work. I have a student now who's completely taken with uh, Simon Don's individuation book. He's a Hegel scholar, but he thinks Simon Don's completely changed how he thinks uh, certain questions should work. But that wouldn't have happened without, he's a Chinese student, so he doesn't know the French so well. So that's why I think translation is hugely important. I mean, because of you, Simon Don's out there, I think this incredibly important, you know, book of his, that's a classic. Um, And I think just now it's... It's, it's starting. It's starting to have its effect, and it'll have it'll have many many years of uh, of people incorporating it and changing the way they think. So that's and why your work is incredibly important. I appreciate that. I'm really glad. I, I still do want to um, correspond with with your student. I know you mentioned that before, and so that would be nice to get to talk to him. Hopefully, you, you consider um, teaching a little bit of Simon Don in your technology class. Uh, you know, whether it be the brick example or his secondary dissertation on the mode of existence of technical objects might have something fun for your students as well. Uh, I am this semester. I'm doing the whole uh, first chapter on hylomorphism. That's awesome. one of the assignments. So it's fa- fabulous. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's it's extremely uh, it's great. And and you know the the brick example was one that <laughs> is what got me into Simon Don through Deleuze. So what I hope is that since Deleuze scholarship, Deleuze translation work, hopefully the Simon Don translation can have a kind of retroactive effect and 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 sort of deepen and broaden the future scholarship on on Deleuze to come because he's such an important interlocutor. Yeah. I agree with that totally. Well, we are going to let you enjoy the rest of your day. And I, I'm going to keep sending you good vibes and hope that, <laughs> hope that the, the COVID subsides. And I just can't tell you how much I appreciate you spending the time with us, even if you were in, in great health. Right. But I, yeah, but, absolutely. But just the fact that you're such a trooper. And I hope that uh, your convalescence, right, uh, is, gives you um, different perspectives, right? I'm thinking about Nietzsche here and Klasowski and, and all of that, wrapping it in a bow. I am indeed seeing my health from the perspective of my sickness now. So, um, but listen, thanks to both of you, Cooper and Taylor, for having me on. It's been really, really fun and enjoyable. So I appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. Well, seriously, thanks. This has been great fun. And yeah, I'd be happy to do it again sometime. We can get to the more substantive questions you have there about uh, (laughs) diving into Deleuze's philosophy. And then hopefully I won't be coughing so much. Yeah, I tried to (laughs) mute myself when the coughing uh, came. So I appreciate it. It came out great, I think. Yeah, it shouldn't be too bad. (laughs) Too much editing. Good. Yeah. That's good to hear. Thanks again, Dan. Thanks again. All right. Thanks. Have a wonderful day. Okay. Cheers. Same to you guys. All right. See ya. Once again, thanks to Dan Smith for joining Taylor and I on this week's edition of the Missionary Unconscious Happy Hour. Peace. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Point of 
Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. With nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.